If you would, I'd invite you to uh, take your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. As we uh, continue this morning in Genesis chapter 12, we're going to be uh, splitting up the reading of the chapter into, into two sections this morning, and those, uh, those two sections will correspond to, to our two main points for this morning. And uh, first, uh, verses 1 through 9 will be uh, point number 1, which is true faith results in obedience. True faith results in obedience. And then, uh, secondly, uh, verses 10 through 20, God's grace is greater than our sin. God's grace is greater than our sin. So we have true faith leads to obedience, and God's grace is greater than than our sin. So let's look to the text. We'll read the first nine verses. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot with him. Now Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Moreh. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel, and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abram journeyed on, continuing toward the Negev. Now, we were introduced to Abram and his family uh, last week, back at the end of Genesis chapter 11 in that lineage that we considered from Shem down to to Abram. And now Moses takes us forward to a consideration of the life of Abram and God's dealing with him. And we need to to note that this uh, marks a big shift in the narrative of the book of Genesis. This is a a big dividing line between uh, chapter 11 and chapter 12. The opening chapters of the book give us the inspired account of creation, the fall, the flood, the covenant with Noah, the Tower of Babel. But now the rest of the book of Genesis focuses in on one family. Beginning in Genesis 12, the next 39 chapters speak to us, for the most part, of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the sons of Jacob, Joseph in particular, at the end of the book. God's redemptive purposes are now focusing in on one family through which he will bring the Messiah into the world. But before we begin a consideration of chapter 12, we might do well to consider just briefly a few of the family details about Abram, which were given in the closing verses of chapter 11, which we didn't consider in particular or at length uh, last week. 
And so if you look back up to uh, chapter 11, verse 26, you'll see the mention of Abram's father, Terah, and Abram's two brothers, Nahor and Haran. And we're told there that when Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Terah. And it's interesting to note that that's a similar statement to what we saw concerning Noah back in chapter 5, verse 32. Chapter 5, verse 32, we're told that Noah was 500 years old, and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. In both cases, the age of the father is given, followed by three sons. Now, in neither case should we assume that all three of those sons were born to their father at the age stated in that verse. Rather, it seems that we should think that the father was that particular age when he began to have those sons. Now, given the data that we have here in Genesis 11 and 12 and the additional material that we find in Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7, we should understand that Abraham himself, though listed first among the sons of Terah here in Genesis 11:26, is probably not the firstborn of Terah. When we, we pull together the facts that Terah lived to the age of 205, as we find in Genesis 11:32, and that Abraham, Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran, as we find in Genesis 12:4, and the detail given by Stephen in Acts 7:4 that Abram left Haran after the death of his father. If you pull the facts together from from those three places, uh, it seems that Abram must have been born when his father Terah was probably about 130 years old or so. In what follows there, in the closing verses of of chapter 11, we see uh, that Abram's brother Haran became the father of Lot, and thus Lot is now uh, Abram's nephew. According to verse 28, Haran died uh, in Ur of the Chaldeans before they had left Ur and gone to Haran. And verse 29, we see that Haran had two daughters, Milcah and Iscah. And Milcah becomes the wife of Abram's brother Nahor. And Nahor and, and Milcah are important in that they show up later on in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 22, as the parents of a man named Bethuel. And Bethuel goes on to become the father of Rebekah. Rebekah then becomes the, fa- the wife of Isaac. So these are, these are important people that, that we're dealing with here, and they, they show up later on in the narrative. Abram's wife, of course, is Sarai, and uh, the two of them, together with Terah and, uh, and Lot, had gone out from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to go to the land of Canaan, as uh, we're told in uh, verse 31. Now, Ur of the, Ur of the Chaldeans is down in south-central Iraq, uh, what we would know today is south-central Iraq, some ways inland from, from the Persian Gulf. And Haran is up in what we would know as southeast Turkey today. And so they traveled uh, quite a distance all together, Terah and Abram, Sarai, and Lot. And uh, they go up to Haran. And the reason for this move from Ur to Haran was the call of God. And Stephen spoke about this explicitly in Acts chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, when he said, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. And so there was a call of God to Abram while they were in Ur of the Chaldeans, and they journeyed together up to Haran. And... 
Abram did this. And this call of Abram by the Lord seems to be the way in which Abram and his family broke with idolatry. The family of Abram was idolatrous. And Joshua described the old family history uh, to his fellow Israelites in Joshua 24, verses 2 and 3, when he said, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham, the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. And so the Lord thus calls an idolatrous man from an idolatrous family to follow after him. The Lord called Abram while he was still in Ur. We don't know how long uh, they were in Haran before Terah died, but at any rate, the call of God seems to have come to Abram once again while he was there in Haran to call him to come to the land that he would show him. And it is with this call that chapter 12 begins. The Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so God, in his grace, calls this man out of idolatry, sets him apart, and blesses him and is going to cause him to be a blessing in such a way that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. And we needed to notice a few things about this call of God to Abram. There is a command given, there are promises given, and there is obedience that was rendered. There's a command, there are promises, and there is obedience. And so first we have this command. There is a call to go, to abandon life as he knew it. And look at what he was called to leave. He's to leave his country, his relatives, his father's house. What was known, what was familiar, what was comfortable, Abram was called to leave all of that behind and to follow the Lord. And there's a sense in which we could say that Abraham is called to deny himself here. He's called to abandon these things. And secondly, notice the the promises that are given there. There's a promise of great blessing Verses 2 and 3, we see those things that God promised to him. He promised to make him a great nation. There is, uh, and this is a a great promise, considering what we've already seen in chapter 11, verse 30, that Sarai is barren. Yet, Abram has promised that he will be a great nation. And the Lord promises that he will bless him and that he will make his name great. This is what the builders of Babel were all about, right? They wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to make themselves great. But here, the Lord promises to make Abram great and to make him a blessing. Those who bless Abram will be blessed by God himself. Those who curse Abram would be cursed by God. They would fall under divine judgment. And then comes that final promise of verse 3, And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And this, of course, is fulfilled in the fact that in making him a great nation, God would bring forth the Messiah from the descendants of Abraham. And therefore, in Galatians chapter 3, Paul refers to this statement of Genesis 12 verse 3 as the gospel being preached beforehand to Abraham. This was in that passage that our brother Jim read for us. 
So Galatians 3, 7 through 9, Paul says, Therefore be sure it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. Certainly there are many details and implications of that promise uh, that were not made explicit in the giving of the promise. But it was a promise that was rich in content, even if its words were but few and not incredibly explicit as to what that, how that promise would be fulfilled. So there's this command to leave what he had formerly known, to follow the Lord into a land which the Lord was going to show him. There are these great blessings that are promised, one of which is the gospel being preached beforehand to Abraham. And thirdly, notice that Abram obeyed the word of the Lord. Verse 4, so Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. There's the command, and Abram rendered obedience. And this obedience was the obedience of faith, the obedience of a believing heart. And that passage that we read together from Hebrews 11 this morning looks back to God's command to Abram here and to Abram's subsequent obedience here in Genesis 12, and it comments upon it in this way. By faith, Abram, when he was called, obeyed, going out to a place he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And in this command, promise, and response on Abram's part of faith and obedience, we should see both the grace of God in the gospel and an example that is worthy of our imitation. As for the grace of God, we see it in God calling and choosing Abram for this this high honor of God blessing him and making him a great nation. This is a gift purely of the grace of God. Because from all that we can tell, by the time the the line of Shem had proceeded as far as as Abram, that line had become steeped in idolatry. Again, those words of Joshua 24 are pretty clear. From ancient times, your fathers lived beyond the river. Namely, Terah, the father of Abram, the father of Nahor, they served other gods. Idolatry. It wasn't like these were the last holdouts of a godly remnant. doesn't seem that way. It seems like these people... These people are lost, as lost as anybody else in the world. But God in his grace calls Abram out of that idolatry. He calls an unworthy man from an unworthy and idolatrous background. The Lord chooses Abram, decides to bless him, decided to make his name great, decided that he would bless all nations through him, decides that he would bless all of us through this man by bringing Christ into the world through him, Humanly speaking, this is how the Lord works in the world. He calls into fellowship with himself wicked people. He calls people out of darkness and into light. And thus, truly it is that no one has grounds for boasting before the Lord. Now, maybe our sin and our background is not as overtly dark as that of Abram's. Praise God if it's not. That's great and well. But whether or not our background is overtly as dark as his, 
at the end of the day, all of us are still just as unworthy of the blessing of the grace of God. God chose Abram out of a sinful background. He was a man who had nothing to recommend himself to God, and yet God chose him, God saved him, God used him. Abram still had a long way to go as far as practical holiness is concerned, and we'll see that, uh, Lord willing, later in the chapter. But what we see here is the sheer grace of God, which Paul described in Romans 9.16 by saying that it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. God chooses the base things of the world so that no one would boast before him. 1 Corinthians 1, 28 and 29. This is how God worked in the case of Abram, and this is how God works in the case of everyone whom he saves. He saves the unworthy. He saves those who are born dead in trespasses and sins. And so we see in this the, the grace of God in the gospel. The grace of God which came to Abram now comes through Christ to all families of the world. And as Paul says in Galatians, all who have faith are blessed along with Abram the believer. The gospel is preached beforehand to him and then in the fullness of time God sends forth his son born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And therefore seeing this great grace and love of God towards sinners, this should motivate us then to respond to this grace in faith and in obedience, just like Abram did. Again, Abram is a man who is worthy of our imitation in this respect. He received these commands and these promises with faith and with obedience. He trusted what God said, and therefore, he did what God said. He trusted the promise, he obeyed the command. These two things are linked together and must never be separated. Abram's obedience was such that he was willing to go even though he didn't know exactly where he was going. God had not yet told him exactly where he was going to end up. That command of verse 1 has some vagueness about it, doesn't it? Go to the land which I will show you. And Abram obeyed. He left behind those things that were comfortable and familiar, his father's house and so forth. He had a lot with him, but still, he left Haran and all that he had known. And he did that willing to dwell in tents in the land of promise and all of that, because ultimately he was looking to the city with foundations whose architect and builder was God. He's looking beyond the horizons of Canaan, looking to the eternal reward from the Lord. And in all of these things, Abram is a model for us. Now, obviously his specific call is specific to him. He's specifically called to be the father of a great nation, through which the entire world would be blessed by the coming of Christ. Now, that's, that's not my calling. That's not your calling either. In that sense, it's unique to him. But there are some areas of overlap between what Abram was called to do and what you and I are called to do in following Christ. And thus Jesus says, Luke 14, 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, obviously, that language is hyperbolic. We know that we're commanded to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Children are supposed to, uh, to honor their parents in the Lord. We understand that, but we must also understand that there is a point to Jesus' hyperbole there in Luke 14, 
26. That is to say, our love for Jesus and our commitment to following him is to be so much greater than anything else. That is to take the first priority in our lives, greater priority than any other earthly relationship we have. First and foremost, we are to be Christians. We are to be disciples, followers of Jesus. And sometimes following Jesus means that we do so in opposition to our family. Or sometimes it means that we have to do so at some geographical distance from our family. Some go out for the sake of the name of Christ to a place that is far from their family and from their native homes. For one reason or another, sometimes it is necessary that in following Christ, we must leave behind our homes or our families or our homelands. And therefore, Jesus says, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much. Now, in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. That's Mark 10, 29 and 30. So like Abram, we have to be willing to leave behind the things of the world. And we have to do so because we're focused on eternal realities. We must be willing to submit to earthly separations with loved ones for the sake of Christ and willing to submit to earthly hardships for the sake of Christ. And we have to also be willing to submit to a certain unknownness in regard to our earthly future, even as Abram did, not knowing precisely where he was going when he began to follow the Lord. Now, when we begin following Christ in this world, we know what the end will be. We know that in the end, we'll be with him in the new heavens and the new earth. But we don't know exactly the pathway by which he will lead us until we get there. If you had told me 20 or 25 years ago that I would be a pastor in the suburbs of Baltimore, I would have been surprised. As they say, that was not on my bingo card 20 or 25 years ago. But here I am. And so too with you. Your service to Christ may take you in places you would not have expected either. It is in this way that we must follow the Lord even though we do not know precisely where we're going as we follow him. Now, obviously, we know the end. We know that we'll be with him. But we don't know all of the temporary earthly destinations along the journey to that end. And likewise, just as Abram was promised that those who blessed him would be blessed, even so, our Lord Jesus says, Mark 9, 40 and 41, For he who is not against us is for us. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. Now, obviously, we don't take that, those verses, Mark 9, 40 and 41, in isolation from everything else that God has revealed to us in his word and boil all of uh, the whole Christian life and practice down to this one thing. Did you give a Christian something to drink because he is a Christian? Check yes or no. Check yes, you're good. Check no, you're in trouble. Obviously, that's not what Jesus meant. You can't simply give a Christian a cup of water and then live like the devil and expect to be rewarded by God on the judgment day. But inasmuch as you support and take care of Christians because they belong to Christ 
And if by your hospitality and love you are demonstrating true solidarity with them, showing that their faith is your faith, and that you are both clinging to Christ alone, such a person in that situation ought to know that God will give them their reward. They won't lose it. And so just as those who blessed Abraham are blessed, so also those who bless us as believers in Christ, who do so because they are in lockstep solidarity with us in Christ, will be blessed as well. And so, again, Abram's call is unique to him, but there are some important similarities and some important areas of overlap with our own calling to Christian discipleship. And in these things, we must imitate Abraham by exercising faith and obedience. Now, as the, the chapter proceeds, uh, and as, you, as you look down through the verses 5 through, through 9, we see... Abram obeying, going into the land of Canaan. We see the Lord appearing to him near Shechem, giving him this promise that this was the land that the Lord was going to give to his descendants. We see Abram building an altar there and publicly worshiping the Lord in the idolatrous land of Canaan. And from there, Abram continues traveling through the land. He next pitches his tent between Bethel and, and Ai. And again, there he builds an altar to the Lord. This is, this is a recurring theme in, in Abram's life. When he, when he moves on, he, he builds altars, he worships the Lord. And he calls on the name of the Lord. This man is a worshiper of God and a follower of God. And finally, verse 9, he goes down uh, toward the, the Negev, the southern part there of the land of Canaan. Now, let's look ahead to, uh, to verses 10 through 20 as we proceed now to our, our second point. God's grace is greater uh, than our sin. Verse 10. Now, there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. It came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now. I know that you are a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. And they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. It came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her, and praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore he treated Abram well for her sake, and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys, and male and female servants, and female donkeys and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you tell me? Why did you not tell me that she is your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. Now here we're reminded, once again, as we saw a couple of weeks ago in the case of Noah, that true believers can sin greatly. They can sin greatly. They do sin greatly. And Abram's perspective here is, is pretty clear. He goes to Egypt in the first place to 
preserve himself and his family and his livestock from the famine that was in the land. This is, this is life-threatening under the circumstances. You've got to get out of there. got to find a way to provide food for you and yours. And the land of Egypt is going to be a more promising place to find food during a famine than the desert land of the Negev. But his fear, as they draw near to Egypt, is essentially that he might be jumping from the frying pan into the fire that he might be jumping from famine into certain death. He fears that the Egyptians will kill him so that they can take his wife. Sarai is a beautiful woman, and he's afraid that they might literally seek to take her over his dead body. And so he has this idea, and the idea is for Sarai to tell a half-truth as if it were the whole truth. The half-truth is found in verse 13. Please say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me on account of you, that I may live on account of you. Now we know that this is not an absolute and complete lie because of what we find later on in a similar situation in Genesis chapter 20. In that later circumstance, Abraham does the same thing uh, with a different king, telling Sarah to say that she was his sister instead of his wife. And when it becomes known that Sarah is actually his wife, Abraham says to the king in Genesis 20, verse 12, he says, Besides, she actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And so it's not completely untrue that Sarai is his sister. It was true. But that truth is used in this case as if it were the whole truth, so as to make it seem that what was false was true, and what was true was actually false. Abram told Sarai to say that she was his sister so that it would make it appear that she wasn't actually his wife, and therefore to make it appear that she was single and available. And this plan is carried out. The Egyptians see, just as Abram thought they would, that Sarai is beautiful. They tell Pharaoh about her beauty. He takes her into his house. We don't have any definitive evidence here in Genesis 12 that the relationship was actually consummated. In the parallel case of Genesis 20, we have definite information that the relationship was not consummated. And my supposition is that the same holds true here. Uh, though the text of Genesis 12 doesn't explicitly tell us one way or the other. But then notice that according to verse 16, Abram gets loaded up on account of Sarai. He had said earlier up in verse 13 that he wanted her to say that she's his sister, that I may live on account of you. And he not only lives, but he actually gets wealthy. And as he gets wealthy, the household of Pharaoh gets struck with great plagues. And the irony of it all is that both occur on account of Sarai. Abram gets rich on account of Sarai, the house of Pharaoh gets struck because of Sarai. And in one way or another, Pharaoh eventually puts the pieces together and understands why this is going on, why his house is being struck with plagues. And so he says to Abram, verses 18 and 19, What is this you have done? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And so Pharaoh gives Sarai back to Abram, and he sends him away. Now, not too far below the surface here is some obvious application. 
Just as Abram was a model for us in the first part of the chapter because of his faith and his obedience to the Lord, so here he stands out as an example of what we ought not to do. His behavior is a warning to us. Now, we, we get that. That's, that's pretty easy. Concealing the fact that Sarai was his wife to such a degree that she was taken to become another man's wife is really wicked. We get that. But the sin here becomes somewhat even more heinous when we think about all of the dynamics that are in play here. Abram was worried for his own life, for his own safety, and so he places someone else in danger. Being a beautiful woman, he did not fear that Sarai would be killed. But her chastity, her honor were at stake, to say nothing of her personal comfort and peace of mind. But Abram was willing, in this sense, to put his wife in harm's way in order to save his own neck. Now, self-preservation is a good instinct, but we should never follow that instinct into the path of sin. Rather, as a husband, he should have been willing, rather, to lay down his life for the sake of his wife. He should have been trusting in the Lord who had previously called him, previously gave him these great promises. He should have been thinking of legitimate ways in which he could keep both himself and his wife safe. But instead, he puts her, the weaker vessel, into harm's way in order to keep himself safe. Now, obviously, this is bad. Don't do this. Don't do wicked things like this. Now, most of us who are married will probably not be in danger of being killed, at least under the present circumstances of our place and time, or not in danger of being killed so that someone else can marry our spouse. I'll be honest, this is never a fear that I have had. I've never suspected that I might be killed so that someone would marry my wife. But surely, the lesson to be learned here applies much more broadly than simply sin in all of this specificity as it appears here in Genesis 12. We need to learn from this situation that we need to be honest. We need to be willing to speak the truth even when there could be potentially dangerous consequences for us. We need to make sure that, we, that as we look out for our own safety, for our own well-being, we also are looking out for the safety and well-being of others, especially those others whom we are explicitly supposed to be protecting. Abram was not doing that. And in doing these things, we need to be trusting in the Lord. We don't know what God's will is in the various circumstances that we encounter in the sense that we don't know what exactly is going to happen to us in the circumstances that come to us. But we can always, as Peter said in 1 Peter 4.19, entrust ourselves to a faithful creator and continue to do what is right. Our responsibility is to trust the Lord and to do right. To trust the Lord and obey Him. And we may not make it out of every situation absolutely unscathed. But we can always trust that our times are in God's hands, as David says in Psalm 31, 15. We can be confident that God will do what is right concerning us. He will not be unjust in His dealings towards us, but will fulfill His purposes and His promises for us. And therefore, we can say with, with David, Psalm 27, 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? And in taking that attitude, we can obey the words of Jesus in Matthew 10, 28, when he says, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him 
who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. And so we want to learn from the negative example here of Abram, and we want to do the opposite. And at the same time, we need to, to see again here some of what we saw in the first half of the chapter, namely the amazing grace of God towards sinners. Abram sinned. He didn't trust God to protect him, and so therefore he tried to save his own skin, as, as we have seen. And all that he did is really bad, really indefensible, and we can put a period after that. Indefensible. But the grace of God is even bigger. A whole lot bigger than all of the sinful and evil and indefensible actions of Abram. Despite Abram's sin, he is still the man with the promises. God didn't dump him. He didn't say, I promised to bless you. I promised to make you a great nation. I promised that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through you. But because you have done this, I promise is off the table. We're done. God didn't say that. The Lord remained true to his promises. God's purposes with Abram were not thwarted in the least by what Abram did here. The grace of God was greater than the sinfulness of Abram. And it is noteworthy that as the events turned out, this situation with with Abram and Sarai and the Pharaoh actually kind of foreshadowed the, the events of the Exodus, which would occur some 400 years plus later. Famine was what drove Abram to the land of Egypt, even as famine was what drove Jacob and the patriarchs to Egypt. Sarai was essentially in captivity to Pharaoh, taken into his house, as the Israelites would later be in captivity to Pharaoh. In both cases, the Lord struck Pharaoh with plagues so that those who were in captivity would go free. And in both cases, God's people plundered the Egyptians and went away wealthy on their way out. And so, Christian friend, let's marvel at the amazing grace of God. When we see the Lord loving and remaining faithful to Abram, despite what he had done, it should give us great hope concerning his dealing with us. And this is because, in some respects, we are like Abram. We're not like him in all respects, obviously, but we are like him in some respects. Those who are of faith are the sons of Abram, and we imitate him in faith. And unfortunately, the exercise of faith is not the only way in which we imitate Abram. Sometimes we imitate Abram in our lack of trust in the Lord's provision for us, in our lack of trust in the Lord's care for us, in our lack of trust in the Lord's promises for us and to us, We imitate Abram in our tendency to think that we have to protect ourselves from harm, even if that means sinning against the Lord, even if that means putting those whom we should be protecting into harm's way. We worry about what we will eat, what we will drink, what we will wear, and so on. We look out for our own comfort and let someone else take the hit from our selfishness. Sometimes we imitate Abram in all of those ways. And sometimes we imitate Abram just broadly in that we're sinners. He sinned. And so do we. But Abram received the grace of God. He deserved none of it when he first came to him, when God called him out of idolatry. He deserved none of it when God loaded him up with riches and sent he and Sarai out of Egypt. Abram deserved nothing good from God's hand, nothing at all. But God is merciful to his people, and we see that mercy on display here, and that should cause us to take heart. 
The Bible, thankfully, doesn't shy away from showing us the sinfulness of God's people. And that is good for us because we ourselves are sinful and in need of mercy. And therefore, we can rejoice in God's faithfulness to Abram because this is a reflection of God's unchanging character. His faithfulness toward Abram will be manifested again and again continually toward all of his elect children. Micah seven eighteen, we read this, Who is a God like you, who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. This blessing of grace and mercy, the Lord delighting in unchanging love toward mercy and passing over his rebellious acts, this came to Abram and it comes to us too if we are in Christ. And in fact, this was the very reason why God called Abram and set him apart in the first place, so that this blessing of grace might come to all of the world. This blessing of grace comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ came into the world as the seed of Abram, and it is through Jesus Christ and only through him that this grace and mercy of God towards his people comes. Jesus alone is the Savior, alone is the Son of God, true God and true man who came into the world. Jesus alone lived sinlessly and went to the cross to die for sinners and rose again on the third day to show that the judgment of God against us had been satisfied. The good news of the gospel is that, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting the sins of men against them. Isn't that what we see here in Genesis 12? God not counting the sins of men against them. This is what God is doing in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And all who trust in Christ will receive this mercy and grace, just like Abram did. And so if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, my encouragement to you is keep trusting in Christ. Keep looking to him. He was your only hope when you were first saved He's your only hope still today. And if you're here this morning and you've never yet trusted in Christ, I want you to know also that Jesus is your only hope. If you desire the mercy and grace of God, if you understand that you're a sinner and know that you can't stand before the judgment of God and come away uncondemned, I want you to know that Jesus died for sinners like you. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time to trust in Christ. And if you have more questions about what it means to, to trust in Christ and turn from sin, you can talk to me after the service or you can talk to another Christian whom you know. We'd love to tell you more about how you too can receive this great mercy that we see coming to Abram here. The God who was merciful to Abram is still merciful. And he'll be merciful to you if you seek him in faith. So look to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that your word even shows us the, the sins of your people because it shows us and magnifies to us your grace which is greater than those sins. Lord, we ask that you would help us, that we would look to Christ and that we would realize what a great blessing it is that you sent your son into the world so that we too can be recipients of this grace and of this mercy, we praise you for your kindness and your love. We give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.